Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We're back for our fifth series and it's going to be better than ever. We sat down with Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England, to ask him about his job. He's been in the news lots lately, talking about the war in Ukraine and the impact that that is having on the cost of living crisis, along with energy surging prices too. It's rare to be able to get so long with the Governor and ask all the questions that you want to be able to about cryptocurrency, the ability of working from home and and how that perhaps impacted our economy less than we thought. We even talked about when we might get a female governor. And perhaps most interestingly of all is normally we have entrepreneurs on this show who talk about building a culture and building a business from zero. Whereas of course the Bank of England is one of the oldest institutions in the world and talking about how the governor is trying to bring his personality to an institution that has been around so long. It's a fascinating listen and as always thank you for your support listening. This is our launch week and so if you could rate the podcast this week that makes an enormous difference. You can do so on iTunes or Spotify. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now, on to today's episode. Andrew, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Well, thank you. We all know that the Bank of England is in charge of interest rates and inflation, but there's almost 4,500 people here. So what's, what else is the Bank of England responsible for? Well, it's interesting with the Bank of England. We do quite a very broad range of things. They're all focused, really, on our, what we call our, you know, our core objectives, which are we said monetary policy, um, price stability, low inflation, and financial stability. Uh, and they come together. The two things you know, sit very, very closely interconnected. So on the financial stability side, we look at both you know, what, we, what we tend to call sort of overall financial stability or macro financial stability, and we are the regulator for prudential purposes of banks and insurers. But we do quite a lot more than that, actually, interestingly. We're heavily involved in payment systems. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we do issue banknotes. Uh, and we do have... The, we're, we're sitting here today above the world's, I think, second largest store of gold. Yes. Um, so it's a very, <laughs> as you say, 4,500 people, very varied institution in that sense in terms of the range of things we do. And what kind of roles are you recruiting for? And how's that kind of changed over the years? Because I imagine sort of data scientists has become something that's more important. Yes, I mean, I, it, it, that's a really interesting point, actually. We, I mean, we recruit... Um, yeah, we recruit actually extensively across the full range of activities and need, and need quite a broad range of staff, obviously. But it, you're right that our, like many organizations, our 
you know, our need for data, data science skills has grown, frankly, and will continue to grow. I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to, you know, need to get to eventually in that, on that sort of front. We recruit, obviously, you know, economics graduates for, particularly for, particularly for monetary policy and macro financial stability, quite a right, wide range of skills in regulation. Um, we've got, you know, got quite a few lawyers in the organization. Um, you can't be without them. Um, so yes, it's quite a, it's quite a broad range of skills. And as I say, for our, you know, for areas like, um, you know, banking operations, payments, notes, bank notes, again, a broad range of skills we've got people right from what I would call very high-end skills in terms of the sort of science of banknotes, designing banknotes, and also people who are sort of very much involved in the you know, the management, production, and distribution of side of things as well. But it might be the case that you wouldn't necessarily think of applying to the Bank of England if you were a designer. No, you wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I think, um, not that I've ever designed anything, I should say, <laughs> probably is a better way of putting it. Uh, art was not my subject at school. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the art teacher pl- told my parents when I was think I was thirteen that there were probably many other things that he could more usefully do. And <laughs> I think he was right. Well, it's not my skill. But it, but it's interesting. I mean, I, I used to be chief cashier, so I've been been quite heavily involved in mm. notes. I mean, I, it is quite a obviously quite a specialist area of design uh, skills. So I think if you sort of if your sort of chosen career is is is, is design in the sort of what I might call security, mm. you know, and banknotes and security document area, then it's it's quite a specialist skill because a lot of it involves how you integrate concepts of design with with security features and devices, and uh, and obviously what is quite a quite a fascinating and fast moving world in terms of how you incorporate security into uh, into notes. And how do you go about kind of recruiting those people because and and make the bank kind of appeal to a sort of new generation because you know we sit here and those kind of watching on youtube can sort of see the ornate kind of room that we're in with latin kind of inscribed on the walls how do do you make that appeal to a sort of it's very obvious (laughs) economics not using people like me directly in the recruitment campaign (laughs) 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 old fogies let out well I, i tell you actually what we are I mean, it's interesting just to sort of step back on that point for a moment because we have done a lot of work on diversity and inclusion Mm. and frankly are doing a lot of work on diversity and inclusion. And one of the things that I and colleagues are very keen and clear on is that as an important public institution, we have to bear a a good enough resemblance to the society that we serve. Mm. I mean, it can't be exact, obviously, but... We have to be, frankly, more diverse and inclusive than, you know, like many institutions historically we were. Um, and it's important not just because it's important in its own right, frankly. It's important because, you know, we are serving the needs of the public of this country and we have to, you know, reflect the public of this country that we serve. And that has been quite a big, that has been and is a big driver of our recruitment at the moment, which is to say, how do we reach, hmm. you know, sources of people that can give us that breadth and, and, and broaden us out because you know, there's no question there are, there are big pockets of talents that we can access in that sense so we've, we've been very conscious about doing that i think you know it is paying you know we're seeing the results of that but we've got a lot more to do to to really achieve that it also lies behind our recent decision to want to um, establish uh, a, a larger presence. Uh, actually, we're planning to establish it in Leeds. Actually, mm. to be 
to be you know, to have more of our staff out of London because again it will give us the ability to access uh, more people from other parts of the country who don't want to to move and live in London. What is the bank's responsibility and and aim when it comes to a government policy like levelling up and so on? Because obviously that's that's quite a tangible way of well, we can shift staff and recruit yeah. out there. But but more broadly and and you know what mm. what does levelling up mean to you? Well, I think for us it, it it comes in sort of at least two ways. I mean, obviously we we follow it very closely from the point of view of as you say a policy of the government. We're not directly involved mm. in, in that side of policy making, but insofar as it's having an impact on the economy, um, then we're, you know, we're, we're obviously interested in how it's, how it's going to affect the economy, how it's going to work. Secondly, I mean, it's, it, you know, it has been part of our consideration of you know, what is the sensible, in a sense, mix of locations for the Bank of England. It, it, it's quite interesting, this the bank, because... Bank of England I joined, actually, I joined in 1985, did have branches around the country, but they were increasingly becoming, mm. frankly, r- redundant um, in terms of the way that bank was evolving. And so we moved not that long after I joined to a, you know, to a model which was far more London-centric and, and, and have been in that place for well, probably sort of 30 years now, I suppose. Uh, and we are going to yeah, we're going to turn that around somewhat and say establish a presence in Leeds. We've got regional agencies, so we've got 12 regional agents who cover the whole country for us, who are really our sort of eyes and ears on the economy mm. around the country. And we are, uh, they're quite small though, I mean, they've, they've got a literally sort of single figures of staff. But we, again, because we're quite flexible on the accommodation we rent for, for the agencies, we are planning to, or we're in the process of actually saying to our staff here, Given that we've moved to a more flexible working, um, you know, environment in the context of COVID, that if people want to um, use office space in the agencies, we, you know, we can expand that office space to facilitate it. And it seems to be actually, you know, there's quite a bit of take up from staff on that actually. That's interesting. And why Leeds specifically? I mean, it's got quite a big financial services hub, but so does Bournemouth. So does Edinburgh, etc. Well, we number of things we wanted somewhere. That one somewhere that has a, you know, as you say, a you know, a presence in terms of financial services staff, and therefore will have a sort of, you know, a, a set of staff who've got sort of experience and skills. That's one thing. We wanted to be somewhere with universities around it that mm-hmm. we could, uh, frankly, recruit from, but also you know have partnerships with. Actually, you know, you mentioned data data science earlier. I mean, that's one of our, mm. you know, one of our objectives in terms of growth areas. So universities, uh, you know, is an important aspect of it uh, from our point of view. Um, I mean, we wanted somewhere which was frankly, you know, outside London, well outside London, but, you know, could be got to, mm. you know, reasonably easy because we obviously do imagine quite a bit of movement of staff. Uh, so that was a, I mean, that was a consideration uh, in choosing Leeds. Um, the other thing to say is historically we've been in Leeds um, okay. for a long time, actually. And we are, we have an agency in Leeds, but we also currently have one of our two banknote cash centres in Leeds. We are actually about to close it because we don't need as much uh, capacity in, uh, in, 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 in the sort of banknote distribution business. So... We were quite, you know, it, although it wasn't the... the and main, is, is that directly because of COVID and people using cash? Yeah, yes. I yeah. mean, it, 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 it's interesting with cash. Um, 
I suspect we're all in this position that COVID has accelerated uh, you know, a decline in the use of cash in transactions. But I should qualify that by saying that the, the amount of cash actually an issue has not fallen. Mm. Uh, it hasn't come down at all. So we, we do face what I always call this sort of paradox of cash at the moment, that yeah, we can all observe that we're not using it as much, I think, in, um, in payments and transactions. Mm. But the amount of cash in circulation hasn't gone down at all, interestingly. Yeah. Um, but it does mean that, that that change in transactions does mean that we don't need as much distribution capacity as we've um, had. And um, we also had some issues. We, we, we couldn't stay in the location that we were. We didn't own the building and we couldn't stay there. So it, it, it made sense to, to close our second cash center. We didn't need it. But it, we've been historically in Leeds, so it, it, although it wasn't the major consideration. I'm I'm pleased the Bank of England will stay in Leeds in that sense. What are the roles, talking a bit more about the role of governor now, what what qualities does it make to make a good governor? Because you sound like you're in charge of quite a, a lot of different decisions there, you know, in terms of you know, location in the country mm. as well. You know, it's not just speaking to kind of members of, of, of parliament and chairing meetings. <laughs> uh, my kids say to me, what do you do all day? And I say, I just chair meetings. Right? So that's what I do. <laughs> what do you want me to chair next? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's so interesting. I mean, I, I think you have to have, I think, a very strong interest in public policy. Mm. Obviously, we have a particular area of public policy. I mean, what it say, economic and financial policy. So, you know, obviously, it's not just any old public, any public policy. It's, you know, it's our area. But I think, I think it does require a, a very strong interest in public policy. I mean, people sometimes say to me, why do you sort of keep coming back? <laughs> um, I, good question. And I say, look, honestly, what has always, for me, in my career, what has always excited me about it is that I, you know, I, I think, you know, hard public policy is a real, it's a real challenge, but it's a real pleasure to, to be involved in it. And I think, you know, in terms of what therefore does it require, I think it is yeah, that interest and commitment in, in terms of thinking about, you know, and understanding how we do public policy. But it is interesting with the bank because, a lot of the coverage of the bank is particularly focused on monetary policy, which mm. is analytically, you know, rightly a you know, complex area. But there's a, but there's a whole other area of the bank of England which is about doing. Frankly, it's about about doing things um, and, and doing things well. Um, whether that be as say implementing monetary policy, regulating banks and insurers, um, you know, operating the settlement of payment systems. Um, issuing banknotes, um, you know, there's a very big what I might call doing it, doing aspect of it. And, and just to give you, you know, the obviously the, the current, you know, the, the best example of the moment. I mean, you know, obviously terribly, you know, it's, it's terrible to see what's going on in Ukraine. But it's a, it, you know, it, it is, you know, called it is called the Bank of England into action for a range of things that mm. we you know, we've done. I, you know, within our own remit to support the government and what it's doing. Um, and, you know, one of my things that makes me most proud about this organization is that, you know, we have a lot of skill and experience in this organization. And we have people who, you know, are always prepared to sort of step forward and say, yeah, we can, you know, we can help and do this, do these things. But that is, a, 
yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great example of just how varied the role can be and, and what, the, what the bank does in terms mm. of, you know, effectively almost trying to take a country out of the global economic system. You know, that's not really been done before. That's a huge challenge. No, it is. And, and, and it's a very, I mean, it's a very unusual one. I mean, it is, a, I have to be, let me, let me sort of preface this by saying I'm a very strong supporter of what the government and, 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 and obviously our allies are doing in this respect. So I think it's critical. I think it is the right thing to do. I think you know, what's happening in Ukraine is, is terrible, frankly. It is countercultural, in mm. a sense. I mean, we're, you know, we are in the business of financial stability. And not, I mean, and obviously our direct responsibility is UK financial stability, but you can't see UK financial stability as a sort of island yeah. uh, in that sense. I mean, it is, it is part of a global financial system, and we know that almost better than anybody because we've got these very big, you know, financial markets um, in this country. So to turn that round and say, let's use the sort of the tools to, if you like, so, you know, create a financial instability um, is countercultural. Um, it's now, we, as I say, I'm afraid, sadly, because of the you know clearly unwarranted aggression and invasion, it has to be done, and it's the right thing to do. Now, I should say to qualify the counter cult, countercultural point, obviously we have to ask ourselves the question sort of daily: Is this set of activities threatening broader financial stability? Mm. We can't just cut it off and say, we'll do one thing over here and another thing over here. So we do have to keep asking ourselves the, you know, the question that fits exactly into our, uh, into our remit, which is, what are the threats to financial stability from what's going on? But you know, we have also been, you know, in a sense, helping governments to say, if you use the tools of, let's say, economic sanctions, what, you know, what how effective will they be? What has what, the most impact? Which are the more effective tools? Yeah, what has the most impact? And what would you not want to happen to us? Well, yes, and of course you can you can view it through that lens. Yes, yeah. And how how do you bring your personality and how do you create a culture in an organisation that's existed for three hundred years? Because it's predominantly we speak to entrepreneurs about kind of building a culture from from the ground up you come at it from almost the opposite angle and you started yeah. as well in mid-march 2020 which... yes it was good timing so <laughs> <laughs> here with a sense of irony um it's so interesting um and it was very much um an issue for me when i was thinking about you know what i thought were the challenges of, of becoming governor and there's a very delicate balance in an organization like the Bank of England. So there's no question that the bank benefits from having this you know, very strong presence and reputation built up over you know, many years. The institution has changed, by the way. I mean, you know, the institution of 300 years ago was almost unrecognizable from the one we have today. It's changed in my time. I mean, I've, you know, you know, I've, I've been here since 1985 most of the time, not quite all the time, most of the time. It's changed a lot, but there's no question that the history matters. Uh, yeah, and it was, you know, it's very evident to me. I mean, I spent 
you know, not far off four years as chief executive of the Financial Conduct Forum. Mm. And, and that's a very new organization. It was created in 2013. So, you, you, you know, I've had the first-hand experience of what it means to have history and how you, you know, how you meet the challenge of an organization that doesn't have it. So it means a lot to, to, to us, and it means a lot that we have authority uh, with, a, with a sort of small A that comes from that. On the other hand, you can't have an institution that never changes. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a road to, you know, to problems. Um, so this balance of the sort of the history and the authority, but needing to have the culture change is, is, is one that I, you know, I think about a lot. Um, I did set out with some objectives. I do have some objectives actually for my time as governor where I felt it was important that we did make some changes. We did start to adapt to the bank to the way the world around us is changing. Um, and that's both, both internally and how we, you know, how we operate in the, the outside world. I've had to sort of, in a sense, you know, balance that with the fact that COVID came along on sort of day one of my term as governor. So nothing has been normal. Um, so we've had to, we've had to balance that. We've had to sort of obviously do that in a context of a world where, you know, we've been through periods where, you know, the staff haven't been here much mm. of the time. So it's, it's, it, it's been a challenge, but it's still very much you know, high on my, you know, my, uh, uh, objectives that we do, I say, move on maintaining this balance between the benefits of the history and the authority and the change that's going on around us. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Do you think that we will see a female governor in your oh, lifetime? Yeah. Well, I, hope, <laughs> I, don't know my, well, I don't know how long my lifetime is. But, well, I hope so. No, really. I, I mean, we should do, but I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get to choose my successors, so um, I can't give you any, any promises on that front. But I... I think it's important that um, well, it will happen. I mean, there's no, no question in my mind that it will happen. Yeah. Um, and it's very, by the way, I mean, what is important is that we have an institution. You know, there's no reason, of course, why future, you know, my successor or indeed my successor's successor will come from within the organization. Mm. Um, in modern times, the the old bank before sort of before the Second World War was a very different organisation in terms of how it worked in terms of governance, so it's not really comparable. Um, since since the Second World War, um, more of the governors have come from outside than inside. Um, so to say, there's no reason um, as to which way it will be. But I but it is important to me that we have, you know, we develop people in the bank with diversity who. You know, can aspire to these jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you think on was it an ambition of yours when you first walked in here in 1985, the sort of son of two teachers from from Leicester to to be governor? Did you think that was a possibility? No, I no, I don't think. So. No, I didn't. So far as I can remember, back to 1985. No, I came here. I mean, people often ask me, "Why did you come to the Bank of England?" I um, yeah, I thought it was interesting as an organisation. I'd, I'd um, done a PhD actually before I came here and had a little bit of interaction with the bank, not much. Um, but no, I didn't come here with a particular aspiration. Actually, I, um, you know, I, I would say I'm somebody who came here, really enjoyed it when I came here, and have sort of hung around. As it were. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us. 
They can be like today's, like the Octopus Group or the Fintech Alliance. But also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer 52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them, and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners. And when it comes to kind of the jobs and the and the economy of the future, what this kind mm. of podcast centers on, which areas of the economy are, are, are growing the fastest and, and which jobs are most in demand is, is the data showing? Well, I think there's no question. I mean, first of all, because we, at the moment, we have a very strong labor market in this country. Mm. Um, I mean, it is, I think, one of the successes of economic policy in the broadest sense during the COVID era, um, that while we were concerned you know, for much of the time that obviously, obviously we had this very big economic shock at the beginning of the COVID period, right at the start of my term, actually the economic impact of COVID attenuated as time went on. But I mean, for, our, for, for, for quite a long part, Good part of that period. I mean, we, we certainly thought we would see you know a rise in unemployment, and initially we'd see quite a strong rise in unemployment. And, and frankly, I mean, of course, you know, we haven't seen anything like that actually, and that, of course, is good news. That's why initially we started the podcast was because we thought there was going to be a surge in unemployment. No, it never happened. Um, now, when I talk to companies now, and I. You know, do spend quite a bit of my time going around the country talking to companies. Um, first of all, I should say, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this, the labour market is the first, second, and third thing they want to talk about yeah. at the moment. Um, in terms of the question you said about about sort of you know, where are the areas of strongest demand, I would say anything to do with technology and IT mm-hmm. um, is always listed by companies as as the area that they find it hardest to recruit in and, and have highest turnover in. Yeah. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, we have some of that challenge here at the Bank of England as well. I mean, we're no different in that respect. So I think there is a very big demand for uh, workers and the, or people in the tech sector at the moment. I think some of that probably is COVID-related, that people are adapting their ways of doing things, and that has created demand for... And. Um- and what do you think the future of work looks like in that sense of, from an employer side of, of retention? I mean, it's mm. very interesting, Atom Bank sort of moving to this kind of four-day working week. And yeah. the point the founder made was that's largely uh, about retention rather than uh, anything well, else. That's very interesting, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I can give you a, a perspective from you know, our perspective mm. as an employer. I mean, that's... So, I mean, we obviously, you know... I mean, the interesting thing about COVID, I would say, is I mean, we had you know, next to no warning of it. Um, I would say, I think, like a lot of, probably like quite a few organizations, if we had been given warning of it, we'd have sort of gone into a state of nervous exhaustion trying to work yeah. out how to respond to, to it from the point of view of the operation of the institution. Actually, we got very little warning, and the staff were absolutely fantastic. You know, they just sort of got on with it. Um, I was reading about one particular story of the sort of the machines being started at 4 a.m. in the morning, and that's always done in person. Yeah. Yeah. But that 
flipped overnight to... Uh, no, we, we have to start... We, we settle the high-value payment system uh, in, in this country. Um, and we the staff started up... So the, the day starts, as you say, right, it's around four, four-ish in the morning. Um, the system opens up a bit later, but it has to be sort of started up. And we've always had... You know, and we do on a, like, the staff work on a shift basis, and there are always people in here at that time in the morning um, to to to, to get, make sure it's uh, it's going. So no, we did. I mean, uh, you know, we did actually switch very well, almost immediately to to people doing it from home. I mean, I said, look, we, we <laughs> we've managed to do. I mean, again, surprise ourselves about how much we could do it from home. I mean. We've not sent the gold home to somebody with somebody, and we've not sent the banknotes home. But most other things, actually, you know, one time or another in the last two years, have been done from people's homes, including the, what we call the real-time growth settlement system, which is the high-value payment system, and it's all been operated from people's homes. And I, I think, you know, if you'd said to any of us beforehand, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to switch to that? We no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so I mean, that's a, I think that's a terrific example of um, adaptability. And, and creation, and we have to. Do, we, obviously, we've had to do that. So we've moved to. A, I mean, we've moved to a, a more a flexible working environment, which we didn't envisage. We, we had flexible working. Didn't, we didn't have flexible working, but we had more. You know, some areas of the bank were more flexible than others. Uh, some areas not flexible. Say, if you're if you're looking after the gold, I'm afraid it's you know it's not yeah. flexible. Um, but more areas became flexible as a result of, of COVID. So we've moved to that. We're now in the position of, um, I mean, yeah, a lot of us, I mean, our staff are, you know, are, coming up, are back here, not all the time, but they're back here. But we're trying to, I mean, we've got a program called Ways of Working where we're, like lots of organizations I talk to, trying to work out, well, what's the, you know, what's the working environment of the future going to look like? And, and you know, my best, yeah, I think our best guess is there's going to be it'll be more balanced. I think we do want the staff to come back more because I do think that two things that I do think are important. One, I do think, speaking personally, but our colleagues I think tend to. Say, I hope they don't disagree because I'm the governor. And they say it, but I don't think they do. Yeah, you do get benefits from having face-to-face conversations of the sort that you don't get mm. when you're on on screen. Secondly, I think we all face the challenge. How do we make sure that the staff who join us, mm. um, you know, get the same benefits that we all got when we joined the organization of being able to work with and interact with people who've been here and learn from them? Uh, and I worry about the, the new staff. Mm. Yeah, I worry about the young staff coming in, who I think for the last two years, have, you know, it, it's been far more difficult for them than we want it to be to yeah. Yeah, to acquire that knowledge and that understanding of how things are done. So for that reason, I think it's you know, for that reason, if for no other, I think it's important that you know, we do you know, we do have you know, people come to work more. Um, but we're going to balance it. And as you said, I mean, I think the final thing I'd say is, I mean, it is. I'm afraid for, you know because I know people take very different views on sort of the coming to work question, and I get sort of criticised in some newspapers on this. But as employers, we're all having to face the fact that we want to, we're having to recruit people in a job market where mm. that is increasingly part of the, you know, the, 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 the work-life balance. Because you know, it has to be said that you know, organizations have proved that you can do more things um, you know, with home working than you thought you could. Has the economic impact been less than you 
think almost with people working from home two days a week now in white collar jobs, of course. Um, has the impact been less than you would have imagined again if you'd been told that in January 2020? Well, I think, um, yeah, probably yes is the answer because mm. I think if we'd sort of thought about it, never having really experienced it, we'd have sort of sort of thought of sort of big things that could go wrong. You probably have to divide it up again into one or two parts, or more than one part. I mean, I think there's the impact on the organisation itself. Um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you sort of adapt to that and what, what effect does it have on the sort of economics of operation of the organisation? And of course, that, will de that depends on what, you, what your line of business is to a considerable yeah. degree. There is, of course, a second impact, which is the impact on the area that you, you know, you, you're based in um, and the economy that's built up around you. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the were I know economists writing articles on the sort of, you know, the effects of this. And, and, and you can see it in the housing market. I mean, mm. probably the best example in this country is the housing market where, you know, first, again, I mean, the interesting thing in COVID era, in, in the sort of last two years has been that we haven't seen a weakening of house prices in the way that, you know, some, some people thought we might. What we have seen, though, is a change in the pattern of house price increases. So we've had, a, we've had a tradition for a long time in this country that the strongest house price increases were in London and the southeast relative to the rest of the country, and that has reversed in the COVID period. So yeah, we've gone through quite a period when actually the strongest house price increases were anywhere but in London and the mm. southeast. And I think you know, part of, a good part of that story was the consequence of people realizing that they, yeah, they, could, they could live further away from work and, and, it, and it wouldn't be a, be a problem in terms of, of, of the work environment. So that's an economic. I think we've seen that economic impact. I think you know we. I think we probably have seen a you know an economic impact in terms of you know, stronger ac activity in some of the sort of local centres that yeah. you know, are serving people who are living further out relative to inner city functions. Although I think now, I mean, I was you know I was outside yesterday actually. I went out of the building. Uh, yesterday afternoon, there were certainly more people around outside yeah. here than there were. Um, it was deserted for quite a long period of time. Yeah, I stood up for the stood up on the tube for the first time this morning, which yeah. is a lot. And um, one of the sort of big potential growth areas of the economy, of course, is is kind of cryptocurrency and so mm. on. And I know that this is something that the bank is is looking at more. And obviously, as we've discussed, part of it, the primary purpose of the bank is kind of financial stability and, and so on, of which cryptocurrency. Yeah. Is, is not a sort of particularly stable amount. Um, but where are the potential opportunities for the UK economy in terms of we've always been a financial services yeah. hub and um, where, yeah, where, where does crypto play into that potentially? Well, I think um, two things I'd draw out on that. One, um, underpinning crypto uh, is um, some important technological innovations, obviously in areas like blockchain, distributed ledger technology. And I think whatever the sort of the aspects of, the, of this world where the sort of the products that actually catch on are, I think there's a lot of promise and a lot of use being made of these technological innovations already, and I would expect that to continue. So I think the sort of the, the underlying technology is, is important in that respect um, and potentially has a lot of uses, some of which are, are directly in the crypto field and some of which will be, you know, spun off the crypto world, as it mm. were. I think the second thing to say is I, I think it is supporting um, a, 
an increase and a sort of transformation in sort of digital um, technology and, 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 and you know, areas like digital currency. What I think is to be determined is, you know, if we are much more likely to be living in a world of digital currency than, you know, old-fashioned sort of um, old-fashioned payment methods, precisely what form of digital currency and uh, digital, digital, digital use actually ends up being the one that uh, becomes the sort of the accepted norm. Mm. I, in terms of payments, I don't think it'll be crypto in a, in a sort of Bitcoin sense of the term. I don't think that's a, that's, I don't think that is really a practical means of, means of payment. Okay. Um, but again, it may well lead to things. Uh, you know, we're looking at the question of central bank digital currency, mm -hmm. for instance. You know, we're, we're, a lot of work going on, on that, and mo many other central banks are doing the same thing to decide whether that's the way forward. Um, so I think, I, you know, I think we will see digital, and we are seeing, frankly, digital technology and digital, digital payments uh, grow in the economy, and, that they, and they will derive benefit from the underlying technology. Precisely what forms of crypto become, you know, the ones that are sort of, you know, survive into sort of, you know, widespread use, I think, to, still to be determined. And, and what role can the bank play in this? Because the UK has mm. become a kind of fintech leader in the last yeah. 10 years. You know, we've got scale-ups like sort of Monzo, Wise, Revolut kind of based here. Yeah. And they've partly been able to do that because there's been quite an open sort of regulatory yeah. system um, for it in terms of being gently supportive of, of yeah. this kind of innovation. So w what's the bank's role well, in think, the next phase? I think we're, it's always quite, quite interesting. We're a public policy authority, obviously. So I think we need to we need to play our part in creating a public policy environment mm. in which you know, the innovation can safely prosper, as it were. And that's a that's a subtle combination of sort of both carrot and stick, if you like. So we uh, you know, we need a regulatory framework mm. that provides people with the confidence that you know, they can use this stuff safely, uh, with safe to be determined. Of course, the parameters of what that means to be determined. But we have to have a regulatory environment, and you know, and, and there has to be one. I mean, I I am quite firm. There are, I hear occasionally people in the crypto world who sort of say, I don't think. I mean, it's only part of the crypto world. There's a bit of the crypto world that is quite libertarian in its outlook and, yes. and says, look, we're different. We've created a parallel universe. <laughs> well, actually, no, you haven't. I'm afraid it's the answer. You know, you're not in that world. Um, you know, I read somewhere somebody saying the other day that, you know, Russian sanctions shouldn't apply to the crypto world because the crypto world's different. Well, no, it isn't, actually, I'm afraid. Yeah. That's, you know, you're deluded if you're in that world. Um, so there is a sort of, you know, create the environment in that sense. But there's also the how you know how public policy can be used to encourage mm. uh, you know safe safe innovation um, because obviously you know that's important we can both because you know we can sometimes get in the way of things we shouldn't get in the way of but often also because it requires you know the public policy environment to adapt to accommodate it yeah um, and you know what I would say is you know we've always got to move the public policy environment on. It's, it, it can never yeah. stay still, because if it does stay stationary, we'll get problems, you know, things will go wrong. And we will we'll not only fail to accommodate sensible change, but we'll actually you know, slip up, because things will, you know, things will start going wrong um, as, 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 as change happens around us, rather mm. than being part of it. And, do, and do you own any Bitcoin? Sorry? Do you own any Bitcoin? I don't, no. I, I, I mean, I have, I, I'm not a... a, a 
to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not liked by the advocates of Bitcoin because I have said I don't think it I don't think it has any intrinsic value. Mm. It can have extrinsic value in the sense that you know people want to own it and people collect all sorts of things, um, but it doesn't have intrinsic value. Mm. So now it's quite interesting when I you know I make this point to different audiences depending on which audience it is. It tells costs quite a bit about who owns who owns it. But um, no, no, I don't own it myself. As you've heard in this interview with the Governor of the Bank of England and in the Rishi Sunak interview at the start of our last series, the UK is a world leader in financial technology, otherwise known as fintech. It is one of the most exciting sectors out there. And that's why I'm really pleased that the Fintech Alliance is supporting this episode of Jimmy's Jobs. The Fintech Alliance is where ambitious people, investors, and industry leaders learn and share together to succeed in the world's fastest emerging global ecosystem. You can check out how they help people to discover, connect, and prosper in the fintech community at www.fintech-alliance.com. And what innovation does most excite you? I see you wearing an Apple Watch, for example. So you're clearly... Um, My kids got me this, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What, where, where's the big kind I'm, of... Come, come absolutely, you know, completely fanatic. You know, you, you can never get away from an Apple Watch once you get one. Yeah. You know. um, what, what's, where do you see the kind of big, you know, you sort of said earlier, technology jobs being in demand. Where, what kind of ex- excites you in the technology industry more broadly? Well, no, I think there is a, I mean, there's a, I think there's a huge capacity to adapt and, uh, you know, make our, make our working and our non-working lives um, you know, easier. I mean, look, I, I, I'll give you an example. I have become basically paperless because of COVID and technology. So I had a visitor the other day. It's a true story about two weeks ago. I had a visitor. I don't know who it was. Uh, they came into my office and said, well, you can't be very busy. You haven't got any paper around. And I thought, <laughs> thank you. I thought, thank you. Well, that's a great voice comment. No, um, I, the fact is, I said, well, there's an iPad sitting on the desk. It's all, it's all in there, basically. I mean, I, you know, my, my staff sort of, sort of those are, some of them have worked with me for a long time, but still sort of can't quite believe it, I think, actually. Has he? How have we managed him to get him to do this? Um, but it is. I mean, I've changed from that respect. And, I mean, do you think we'll ever sort of head cashless on that side of things, or is that sort of so many years away? Well, I think with cash, um, we're not, we're very clear that we are not seeking the end of cash. Now, the reason I say that is because there are some parts of the population that do, mm. you know, rely on it, use it, uh, don't have access to technology in the same way, regarded as a budgeting tool um, that, that, that they welcome. And I think, you know, our job is to, we always say our job is to meet the public's demand for cash. Mm. But equally, we recognize um, you know, and I, that there are many people who are using it very little. I've, I've, I've had the same banknotes in my pocket for, for a long time because I, haven't, you know, I don't do cash transactions much uh, these days, even though I'm, as a former chief cashier, I'm quite, sort of, you know, I quite like the stuff. You know, yeah. so quite, quite, uh, quite, 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 uh, you know, quite, quite attached to it in that sense. But, it, but, it's, but you know, the times are changing. And I think our job is to meet both demands. So yeah, we, for those people who want cash and have a you know and have a, a reason for wanting it, it's not irrational. Mm. Then I think it's our job to to, to meet that demand. Um, but it's also our job to, to ensure that those people who say, "Look, I'm moved on," 
you know, I'm, I'm in the digital world now, um, that we have payment systems, we have a financial infrastructure in this country that can meet, meet the demand. Um, and we'll just, final couple of quick questions. Um, in terms of building relationships and building them with kind of the external parties that you've had to do in the time mm. that you've had to do it, you have to have relations with kind of the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. How have you kind of been able to do that over the last couple of years? Because it's been, A, it's been an intense time, but it's also just been physically hard to, to have those kind of interactions face-to-face. -face. Well, we've had, again, I mean, I think we've all had to do things, you know, to learn to do things um, you know, without the same degree of sort of direct personal sort of interaction. So, you know, we talk far more, you know, on screens and you mm. know, what have you. Um, you know, Chancellor and I participated in many international meetings at many different hours of the day and night, um, where you know, we're meeting our you know our counterparts in other countries. I mean, it, and we've you know we've had to adapt and, and, and get used to doing that. Um, I think you know I think we I think we will go back to more in person because again you know there is a there is a value not just to the the agenda of the meeting, but the fact that you can talk to the person mm. from the other country, and you've usually got sort of four things I really want to talk to that person about, uh, and it's easier to do it face-to-face. -face. But we've all had to adapt to that world, and I think we've, I think we've adapted pretty effectively. If you could go back in time to one period in history, now I know I'm speaking to a PhD history student here, <laughs> for, for 24 hours, just to observe, not to change anything, when and where would you choose? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I, I'm going to slightly cheat and slightly change the question, but, but I hope you understand why. So I, I do actually read quite a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. Um, the older I get, the more books I read, actually. It's quite, I'm quite lucky. And I, have, I, I, I didn't know a lot about the history of Ukraine, I have to be honest. Mm. And I've recently read a book on the um, famine in Ukraine and the 1930s. And it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, in a, but but in a sort of very disturbing sense. But you learn a huge amount about what you know what you see today going on in Ukraine, and, and the tensions between Russia and Ukraine. I, I learned a huge amount from reading the story of the the 1930s, um, and certainly you know. To, what to learn about them. I mean, you asked me a question about experience, but mm. I'm slightly sort of slightly changing the question. I mean, I came away realizing why, you know, why we're sort of reading and hearing things said, uh, and what it, you know, what the sort of the culture and the sort of identity of Ukraine means in history. That's uh, why I would say, you know, the notion that history repeats itself isn't the right way of thinking mm. about it. But there's an awful lot that we can take from history. And help us to explain what we're seeing today, and that for me, I mean, it's it was, I say, tragic. I mean, utterly tragic to read about it, but but fascinating in the sense of helping me to understand what I'm experiencing and you know somewhat involved in. What was the name of the the book? It's called Red Famine. It's by Red um, uh, Anne Applebaum, um, and um, I say it was. I mean, it's a very disturbing book. And I know there. I mean, look. I know there are different. I mean, I, there are different views on on what on, on what happened, and I know that the Russian view is different. But I mean, um, it is a. It, it's both a disturbing book in its own right, in terms of the history of it, but it tells you an awful lot about the sort of, you know, why there is this uh, uh, tension and um, how it's come about. 
Well, I'm sure that will be uh, fascinating now. Do, uh, is there a, the final question is always, is there a book that you want to recommend? So you've, you've sort of taken that one. But is there, is there another one that's particularly helped you on your journey as to Governor of the Bank of England that, would, that inspired you? Try and finish on a more positive note. Inspired me? Um, well, so I, I read it, unfortunately, I, I, do get, I do read a lot of books, actually. Um, so I'm not sure I'd, I'd pick one out that I would say was the inspiring book of all time. I would, I would sort of really just encourage, you know, for me anyways, I, I find reading widely. And I do, I do tend to read books in the area of sort of history, economics, politics, um, philosophy. Those, mm. those, I suppose those are the areas. I mean, and, and, I, and I do tend to pick books that I think have some, although I think it's important to read widely, by the way, I, I, so don't don't stick books on central banking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, although there is a, I, mean, I should say, if, I mean, on central banking, one of the again actually goes back to the interwar period again. Actually, there's a book called Lords of Finance, which is mm. um, about one of my predecessors and central bankers in the U.S., France, and Germany, which is which is fascinating again in terms of some of the tensions that they faced in what was a very difficult period, of, obviously in the interwar period. Brilliant. Well, that is a That's fantastic good. way to thank you. Thank yeah. you very much for coming on. It's been really, brilliant. Real pleasure. Real pleasure.